Happy birthday. It's Pentecost Sunday, and it's an exciting time. You know, delivery rooms are exciting places. Yeah, I know there's some times where it's quiet, not much is happening, but most of the time in a delivery room, it's a pretty exciting place. I think it's the hope of new life that's coming. You got excited moms and dads, and, and, and then, you know, there's grandparents, and everybody's excited, and there's doctors and nurses, and, and stuff's happening. Yeah. I remember when, when our first was born, um, you know, I, had, I was praying for Marlene and, and, and for Nathaniel that they'd be healthy. All I wanted them to be healthy and whole. That's all you want, you know. And uh, I just was praying that they'd be healthy. And I had one goal for myself, just one. And my goal was to not say anything stupid. Amen. That was my goal. Sometimes I like to set my goals really high. And sometimes I like to set them low so they can be accomplished. Well, this one was really high because I didn't accomplish it. Uh, from the very first moment we were in our apartment, uh, Marlene came to me and she said, uh, my water broke and I responded, are you sure? <laughs> which, which as it turns out is kind of a stupid thing to say. I, I, and some of the guys are looking at me here like, is that a stupid thing to say? Yes, that's a stupid thing to, to say. Because things happen, dramatic things happen when a baby's about to be born. Okay. Right? There's some signs that they're coming. Right? They have a way of announcing their arrival, which is unmistakable. And, and that's good because there's a lot of things that have to be done to take care of a baby. I mean, a baby needs a lot to be provided for. It requires a lot. You probably heard about the three dads that were in the waiting room. This was before dads were allowed into the delivery room. Three dads were in the waiting room, and a nurse came out to the first dad, and he said, congratulations, your wife just gave birth to twins. And he said, that is amazing. I, I wasn't expecting that, but you'll never believe this. I actually work for the Minnesota Twins. We had twins. It's incredible. She said, congratulations. She went back. She came out about a half hour later to the second dad. And she said, hey, congratulations. Your wife just gave birth to triplets. And he said, this is unbelievable. Triplets? I was only expecting one. But you know what's what even more incredible is I work for the company 3M. <laughs> about that time, the third guy passed out. And the nurse ran over there to kind of revive him, and the other two dads got around. What's, what's wrong? And he said, he said I, I'm okay, but, but, you know, you work for the twins, and your wife had twins, and, and you work for 3M, and your wife had triplets, and I just got nervous because I work for 7-Up. <laughs> can, can you imagine seven babies at one time? Could you imagine that? Seven, oh my God. Today, we're going to look at the delivery room for the church. And in the past weeks, we talked about the waiting room. We were in chapter one, it was the waiting room. Now we've moved into the delivery room of Act chapter two, where not one, not two, not three, not even seven babies are born. 3,000 brand new spiritual babies are born on the day of Pentecost. So let's look at the text, Acts chapter two. And as you're turning to Acts chapter two, I want you to know something. Um, um, the Spirit of God is here to meet you today. So if there's somebody here and you're feeling drained, you're feeling empty, I got good news that Pentecost is all about being filled. And, and it may be for some of you, it's not just that you feel drained, it's that you, you feel a lack of power in your life to do what God has called you to do. I want you to know this, we got good news, Pentecost is not just about being filled, it's about being filled with the power of the Spirit so that you can do the mission that God's called you to do. And for, there are others of you, there might be some people here today who, it, it's not that, it's just you, you just feel a concern about how divided, how fractured our nation is. And, and I want you to know, if that's you, Pentecost is all about the Spirit healing that which was broken yeah. 
And listen, we need the power of the Spirit in our lives. We, we live in a time where, I, I don't know if you've been following some of the news. We have family in Canada, and so I'm, I'm very concerned about what happens in Canada. And, and, and I don't know if you're following what's happening to some of the religious freedoms in Canada right now. With some of our pastor brothers and sisters being imprisoned or put in jail or whatever. And religious liberties being attacked. And it's not that persecution is going down in the world. It's actually going up. And with the things that we're going to face in the future, we need to be walking in the fullness of the Spirit. We need to be walking in the, we need to be full of and led by the Holy Ghost for what's coming in the future. So let's look at the text, Acts chapter 2. Just going to do a Bible study with you today. Not going to so much preach as just read the text and, and then let's look at it. And we'll stop as we go. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came. Now, we're going to stop right there. We didn't make it very far, did we? Uh, that's only six words. Um, Pentecost, what was Pentecost? Pentecost was a Jewish feast day, and the word Pentecost just means a 50th, right? Because Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. It was one of three feasts that all Jews were supposed to come to Jerusalem for, and that means on this day, Jerusalem is packed with people all over the world because of the day of Pentecost. And it was, Exodus chapter 23 tells us, all about, it was a feast about harvest. That's what Pentecost was about. It was about a feast of the harvest or the first fruits. Now that key, harvest, communicates to us something what Pentecost means to us. Because it was on purpose that Jesus, by his spirit, brought this baptism on this particular day that speaks of harvest. Now let me try to explain that by comparing it to Passover. Okay, Jesus, you know, was, was crucified on the Passover. Exodus 12, you remember the nation of Israel is in slavery to Egypt. Uh, Moses is sent by the Lord. There's these plagues that come on Egypt. The last one is the death of the firstborn. And God instructed his people to take a lamb, the Passover lamb, to slaughter the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it over the doorposts of their life, of their door, actually spread this door of the blood over the door. And when that happened, the death angel would pass over over them, thus the name Passover. They wouldn't die. They were delivered from slavery. They left Egypt healed and whole. The scripture says there wasn't a sick one among them. They were headed for the promised land, and they had this renewed sense of what it meant to be the people of God. That was the initial Passover. Now, Jesus being crucified on the Passover communicates to us that on the day of his crucifixion, at the very moment when Jesus was being crucified, the temple lambs were being slaughtered for sacrifice for the Passover. Thus, Jesus is our Passover lamb. John spoke of this prophetically in John chapter 1. He said, look, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of what all those other things could never produce. He is our Passover lamb. He's the firstborn son of God, the fulfillment of what the whole sacrificial system was about. It was just a shadow of that. And the blood of Jesus on the cross in the form of a doorpost. He bled from his head and his hands and his feet. And in that way, his blood shed applied to our life means the death angel will pass over. We are delivered from slavery. We're delivered from sin. We've been set free. We've been made the people of God, and we're headed to the promised land, man. One day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and the kingdom of God is going to be established, and there's going to be righteousness and justice. That's where we're going. You see that from Passover. In the same way now, 
50 days after Passover on a day designed in the life of the Jews to celebrate a physical harvest of wheat, the Spirit of God comes with an empowering to do what? To harvest. So, so we're not talking about physical wheat anymore, anymore that we were talking about a physical lamb. I got a lamb of God now. No, no, this harvest is a harvest not of, of physical wheat. It's a harvest of spiritual wheat. The souls of men and women, 3,000 got saved that day. One day. Why? Because of Pentecostal power. Let me tell you something. Pentecostal power is available to us today. And you know what it is? It is supernatural power to do the mission that God's called you to do. That's what, it, and I know for a lot of people, in their mind, they hear the word Pentecost or Pentecostal power, and they think of, first thing that comes to their mind is speaking in tongues. And they think if we get in a circle and we all speak in tongues, that's Pentecostal power. That is not Pentecostal power. That's speaking in tongues, which I believe in. I speak in tongues myself. I do it every single day. Every single day I pray in tongues because I don't know what else to pray for some of y'all. So I didn't pray. In, but, but here's my point. Sometimes we think speaking in tongues, that, no, Pentecost is about harvest. And Pentecostal power is the spirit of God enabling the church to bring harvest. That's what it's about. It's what it is. And yes, it happened one time back in history, but that power is available to us today. We don't just celebrate Christmas as something that happened way back then, or Easter as something that happened way back then. We apply it today. Same thing with Pentecost, you guys. Okay, we're only through six words. Oh, goodness. Don't worry, the chicken is in a warmer right now. It's going to be fine when you get there. Okay, verse, oh, we haven't made it through verse one. Okay, verse one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Okay, stop right there again, just for a second. It's important for us to come together. And, and we, and listen, with all, listen, we need, with, with the COVID thing, we need to do it wisely uh, and respectfully, uh, and, and, and we need to be careful, you know, and, and all of that. But there are things that happen. When we come together, that don't happen any other way. It, it is. And so, and so and when you're ready, when, those who are watching, when you're ready, we would love to have you back. Because there are things that happen when we come together. The Spirit sometimes moves in a different way. Sometimes you hear the Word of God preached in a different way when you're present. You, you enter into worship in a different way than when you're present. And, and, and so on this first day of Pentecost, they, they were there. They were all together in one place. Verse 2, suddenly... A sound came from heaven and filled the whole house. I want to point out that word, suddenly. Here's why this is important. The Holy Spirit is free and sovereign and is not controlled by you or me. Okay? I mean, we're told to be full of the Spirit. We're told to be led by the Spirit. We're supposed to be walking in the Spirit. But you don't control the Spirit. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear it sound. But you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, you don't control the wind. But if you're on a boat and you got a sail, you can hoist the sail and let the wind take you. And that's what they did on the day of Pentecost. They were together in one place. We know in chapter 1 that they're praying during this. And suddenly, the Spirit moved. I read a story this week about D.L. Moody. Some of you have heard of D.L. Moody as a famous pastor and evangelist of the 19th century. It was the summer of 1871, 
And in his church, there were two women that just had this burden uh, to pray that he would be filled. And this is what the burden they had. This is the language they used. They had a burden that he would be filled with the Holy Ghost and fire. So they started praying for D.L. Moody to be filled with the Holy Ghost and fire, to be baptized in this fire every day on the front row. Can you imagine? He's trying to preach. These women are praying that he'd get the Holy Ghost and fire. And, and at first, he was a little irritated with this because, I mean, I mean, the brother's trying to preach, okay? So, and, and they're just praying. So finally, he said, the, by September, it was the summer, by September, he says, okay, okay, listen, I'll pray with you guys for this on Friday afternoon, okay? So every Friday afternoon, these two women come, they're praying for the Holy Ghost and fire to baptize them. And, and he's praying and praying, and, and that was in September. And in November, his church burned down. And he was like, that's not the kind of fire I was asking for. So he goes to New York, and he's in New York trying to raise funds to rebuild. There was a big fire in Chicago in 1871, and, 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 and he was wanting to rebuild this the, the church building. And he's walking down the streets in New York City, and, and, and he's crying out to God. He's desperate for God to do something when he writes, suddenly. Listen to his words. No language. Suddenly, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Can you imagine? You're just feeling so overwhelmed by the love. God, I can't take anymore. Notice what he says. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted now. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be small dust in the balance. You see what he's saying here? Here they were seeking God. They were praying. They came together. They were seeking God for this, and and he had suddenly... And I don't know, maybe, maybe today is suddenly for you. You can't make the Spirit do anything, right? But you can make room for the Spirit to do something. They came together, they prayed, and suddenly, back to verse 2. Suddenly a sound came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, just kind of a thing here. What, why does Luke tell us that they were sitting? Like, why not just say it came to the house? I think, I think this is interesting. And, and, I, and this is my kind of like, I, we can't prove, I can't prove this. This is my guess. This is what I think is going on. Luke wants us to know there's no holy posture that makes the Holy Spirit come. Like, it wasn't if you stand, if you kneel, if you bow, if you're on your face before God. No, they, weren't, they were just sitting. And suddenly, the Spirit... And this is good because most of y'all are sitting right now. Okay, moving right along. There's no holy posture. Verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Which ones got this fire? Each. Each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there's three phenomena here. We almost always hear this and we hear just the tongues and we forget the other. But there's an, there's an audible 
phenomena. There's a visual phenomena, and there's an oral one, right? They heard a sound like a rushing mighty wind. They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that landed on each one of them. And then they had this oral, they, they spoke in tongues. So what you have here is what you have many times in the Bible is an visible, audible, touchable demonstration of God's presence. There's a sound of a wind. What's that about? Where in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for wind and spirit and breath is all the same words. So so this picture of Pentecost is what? It's God breathing on his people, and they're coming alive. It's like what happened in the book of Genesis when God formed Adam in the dust of the earth, and then he breathed on him the breath of life, and he was a living soul, the text says. He's breathing on us. This is what this wind represents. It's, it's the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God. And, and then it says his tongues as a fire. What, what, what's that about? Well, fire is a classic biblical image for one, God's presence. Remember uh, in Exodus, what is it, chapter 3, when, when Moses, there's this burning bush that's not being consumed, and, and God is present there. And it's like, God's here, I didn't know this. And, and the fire represented the presence of God. Or, or on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20, where there's the presence of God, the text says, comes down in fire. So this fire represents, that that comes apart and and rests on each one of them is the presence of God, not just in one location, in one place, but on all of them. And and in the Bible, the fire doesn't just represent, by the way, you guys, um, uh, uh, God's presence, but it also represents his, his judgment, not judgment as in condemning, but judgment as in refining and purifying. This goes all the way through the Old Testament. Isaiah 48, Zechariah 13, Malachi 3, Psalm 66, Proverbs 17. There's this picture of God as one who refines silver, takes out the impurities. And and, and that's what the fire represents. 1 Peter 1, Peter picks up on this imagery that's all through the Old Testament about the refining fire. And this is what this represents on every single one of them. So here's what they do. They hear, they see, they speak, and in that, they go from knowing to experiencing. See, see the, the hearing, the seeing, the speaking filled them with this overwhelming sense of the presence of God. I mean, up until that moment, you could imagine, here they are, they're in the room, you know, they're praying, they've just chosen who's going to replace uh, Judas, you know, Matthias, they throw the lots, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And, and one could imagine them saying, we know God is with us because Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Right? And so maybe they knew God was with them. How? The Bible told them so. They knew stuff the way you and I know, know stuff. The Bible said it. They believed it. So God must be with us, right? So they, they knew God was with them. But in that moment, they went from a deductive certainty to an experiential certainty based on the outpouring of the Spirit. Here's the way John Piper puts it. I like the way he words this. He says, the flames on their heads had set fire to the knowledge of God and turned it into passion. And the violence and loudness of the wind had drowned out all the puny voices of doubt and uncertainty. So every remnant of timidity and hesitancy and weakness is swallowed up in the experience of God's greatness. And a tremendous boldness and courage and zeal was unleashed as they gave witness to the greatness of God. Wow. You know what I think happens sometimes to us? I don't say to you. I'll say what happens to me sometimes is that I get controlled by the puny voices of doubt. 
and uncertainty. And you know what I need in that moment? I need to remember the greatness of God. I need to experience the greatness of God. And get my eyes off of these puny, my ears out of these puny little voices that seem so great when they're by themselves, but when you compare them to the greatness of God, are nothing. Verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now stop right there for a second. Every nation under heaven? This is fascinating. Most people, when they say every nation under heaven, they say, well, basically, okay, it wasn't every nation. It, this is just all of the known world, right, or something like that. But I think there's something else going on here. Luke is wording it this way on purpose, and we're going to see why in just a second. When they heard this sound, okay, so all these people from all over the place who are in Jerusalem, they heard us. So the move of the Spirit had some kind of volume to it, Okay. With all due respect to people who think we should turn it down here at church, all due respect, okay? At Pentecost, it was loud. That's all I'm saying, moving right along, okay? When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not these the men who are speaking, are, who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Now, I love this. I love this picture because the crowd comes. At first, they're bewildered, the NIV says, because they're hearing the mighty deeds of God, we're going to see in just a few verses, being said in their own tongue. But second, they are amazed because it's Galileans who are doing the talking. Now, here's just the historical background that helps you understand this. Galileans didn't speak their own language very well, much less anybody else's. Okay, I mean, in the mind of the cosmopolitan Jews in Jerusalem, the Galileans are uneducated, they're uninformed, they're uncouth, they're backward hicks. In fact, when the Pharisees were looking to discredit Jesus as a prophet of any kind, they said, John 7, verse 52, look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. What are they saying? Don't tell me Jesus is a prophet, he's from Galilee. I was reading, uh, a couple of years ago, I was reading a, a modern Jewish author who called the disciples, he's a New Testament scholar who's a, who's a Jewish, Jewish author, he called the disciples hillbillies from Galilee. Okay? I love this. I love, get the picture, get the picture. The Holy Spirit didn't come upon experts. He came upon a group of Galileans. It, it, the Holy Spirit didn't come upon the politically expedient and powerful. He came upon Galileans. He, he didn't come on the rich people or the educated people. He didn't come on the people whose portfolio was properly diversified and their shoes are always shined. No, he came upon 120 hillbilly Galileans. Common people like me. You know, I used to, the thing, I, you know, growing up and, and even into adulthood, it, it probably until about last Thursday, I... The thing I hated most about myself was that I'm pretty average. I'm average height. I'm average weight. Oh, I used to be average weight. I might be a little over now. I may, I may have excelled the BMI index <laughs> doc. Uh, I don't know. Um, but, but in every measurable category, I'm average. 
Just, just average. And that's why in my dreams, when I have a dream, I'm six foot five, 250 pounds of raw muscle mass. That's how I look in my dreams because it's my dream and I can have it the way I want it. But I don't look like that in real life. You noticed, okay. I used to hate the fact that I'm just, everything's average. Average. Man, I used to drive me crazy. Until I realized that's exactly who the Holy Spirit was poured out on. That's exactly the kind of person that was used to turn the world upside down. In the kingdom of God, it's always the people you wouldn't expect. God always chooses the average Joe to turn the world upside down and set it on fire. And that's what they did. (laughs) I think, you know what? I think God didn't make me six foot five, 250 pounds of raw muscle mass because if I was, I would be tempted to rest in that and lean on that. This is my excuse for not working out. Uh, is, no, that's a terrible excuse. I'm sorry. Um, but do you get my point? Yes. Sometimes it, it, it's the average people who are, who, we're, you know, we can't rely on anything else in the human. We, we, we've got to go to the spirit. So it turns out to be a gift. <laughs> because on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on regular people. <laughs> He came on average people, common people, empowering them to do what? To declare the greatness of God, the mighty deeds of God to people who did not yet regard him as great in a language those people could understand. Now think with me, what would that look like today? If Pentecost happened right now, you may say, well, okay, well, somebody would speak in tongues and and somebody might hear it in another language. And you know what? That, That has happened. It's happened to my dad twice, once in Mexico and once in Guatemala, I think, where he was speaking in tongues, and they heard it in Spanish. I guess he was speaking Spanish and didn't even know. I mean, that, that has happened. I, I've have other, it's never happened to me, but I've, I've had other friends that's happened to. I've, I've heard about it happening, and, and, and so that's very possible, okay? So that is, I'm not saying that's not possible, but just think with me again. Regular, average people declaring the greatness of God, the deeds of God in a language that people could understand that who a people who did not yet regard him as great what would that look like in our city i think of our city and i think of a place which has a remarkable diversity in our city man we it is wonderful and it is scary at the same time because there's divisions what would it look like if the church of jesus christ was full of the spirit just normal guy i'm not talking about a bunch of preachers i'm talking about galileans Maybe about 120. We got more than 120 people in here right now. What if, what if, like, uh, like, what if 120 of us, full of the Spirit, declared the mighty deeds of God to people who did not yet regard Him as great in a way they could understand? A couple weeks ago, we had the National Day of Prayer of the step, the Metro Hall steps, and there's I don't know 10 or so of you here there with me, and and there was a kind of a little situation at the beginning where another person kind of tried to take it over and there was some confusion some people thought we were there to protest protesters but we were just there to pray to god for our country that was it there was no there's no political agenda we we're just there to pray and one gentleman he got kind of upset and, and, and there was going back and forth and so i just stood to the side and i was praying you know asking god to give us a way to deal with this and god did it, it was beautiful i mean it was beautiful Man, we got to pray for this guy. God touched him. It was awesome. But while this is happening, I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking to myself, man, how are we going to reach across the barriers in our nation, in our city? 
I mean, how are we going to reach across educational barriers, language barriers, economic barriers, racial barriers? And then I start to dream. I mean, like, not that I'm six foot five, 250 pounds of raw muscle mass. I just start to dream about our city. Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be something if there was a move of the spirit in this city where ordinary people, maybe about 120, hillbilly, Galileans, ordinary people like you and me under the power of the spirit began to speak of the mighty deeds of God in a language that they could understand. And if that began to sweep through a city, we would call that revival. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That takes a move of the spirit. It takes an empowering that cannot be done by any technique or method on the human level. It just needs the spirit of God. That's what we want. Verse 11. No, verse 9, sorry. To all these people, he gives a list. There's a table of nations, if you will. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the part of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now just quick note here. Here they are, their text says they're full of the Spirit. What are they talking about? Just look at the text. They're declaring what? The wonders of God. Here's the deal. When you are truly full of the Spirit, you will have a joyful obsession with the gospel. If you're truly full of the Spirit, you're going to be obsessed with the good news, man. You're going to be obsessed with God and talking about God. If you're full of yourself, you're always going to be talking about yourself. Right? I mean, there's a lot of people, even at church, they're like a lot like uh, the Bette Midler character in the movie Beaches. Remember when she says, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> that ain't full of the spirit. That's full of the self. And when you're full of self, you're going to talk about yourself. When you're full of the spirit, man, you're going to joy in the gospel. You're going to joy in the greatness of God. Yes. In fact, the Greek text here, the NIV says the wonders of God. The, the literal Greek is greatnesses, which is hard to translate in, in English. So that's not a bad choice, wonders of God. And look what's happening here. We're going to show you a map. Here's a map. Um, so there's Jerusalem right there. And these are all of the people groups and countries, or not countries in the modern sense of the world, but people group, ethnic groups, language groups, cultural groups that come to Jerusalem, and they're hearing this being the wonders of God in their own language. Now you're saying, why is this so important for you to see this? I don't feel like we feel the weight of this. Why is it important? A couple of reasons. First of all, in the kingdom of God, there is no elitism of language or culture. On day one, when the church is born, the gospel goes out, not in any one language, but in all of them. Let me try to illustrate that. Um, there's a fellow that he just passed away a couple years ago. His name is Lamansane. And Lamansane, you see a picture of him up there. He was a um, professor of missions at Yale Divinity School. And he also held a, a post in history at Yale University. He was from Gambia. He was from Africa. Um, and he was an African gentleman. And, and he, has written, he wrote a lot of books. He passed away a couple years ago. And one of his books is called Translating the Message. 
And he talks about how Christianity is different when it comes to translating the message from example, uh, for example, Islam. In fact, he used to be a Muslim and he converted to Christianity. Um, in, in Islam, there is one main language and one main culture, Arabic. Right? I, I, on one occasion, Marlene and I used to live in Central Asia. There was a time where I was talking to a Muslim friend of ours, and I told him I had read the Quran. And he said, no, you haven't. I'm like, no, dude, I read the, read the Quran. He said, no, you haven't. I'm like, you want to step outside? No, I didn't do that. I, I, I said, what, why, are you, why are you saying, I, how do you know if I read it or not? He goes, do you speak Arabic? And I go, no, I don't speak Arabic. He said, then you haven't read the Quran. Because an English translation of the Quran is not the Quran in their doctrine, in their theology. It's not, that's not the word of God. It's in Arabic. You, you want to hear God speak? You have to know Arabic. You want to hear God lead you? You have to know Arabic to read the Quran. You have to convert to the Arabic culture to become Muslim, in, in a sense, if you, if you allow this kind of analogy. And what Laman Sane says is Christianity didn't do that to him. And here's his quote. Here's what he said. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. In other words, he didn't have to convert to become a European in order to become a Christian. And here's what he says. He says the kingdom of God is the most ethnically and racially diverse organization or institution or, you know, on the planet. He says, and I find this fascinating. I mean, he was at Yale, okay, so he can say these things. He says, he says the kingdom of God is more racially diverse than secularism. Now, here's what he said. Follow this. It's fascinating. He says, at the heart of what it means to be African is to believe, and he's, from, he's African, is to believe that the world is spiritually alive. Like, that's the heart. That's at the core. To believe there's, there's, a, there's God, there's, there's, there's these spirits, there's evil spirits, there's good spirits, and, and the world is spiritually alive. And he said, when he went to Harvard and to Yale, they invited him in. They said they had ethnic diversity. We love your clothes. We love your music. And, we, man, we really love your food, man. Just, we, and we all have different foods here. We're, we're diverse. And that's what they said. And then they crushed the heart of what it meant to be African. They said, there is no spirit world. There is no God. There are no miracles. Everything is explainable in the natural realm. And so while they were proclaiming to be diverse, they were crushing the heart of what it meant to be African. And he said, Christianity never did that. Now, they, they told me about it. They, they accepted the fact that the world is, there is a spiritual realm. The world is filled with spirits, but there is one who conquered them all, and his name is Jesus. And that's what happened. <laughs> so what's the practical application of this? It's very simple. Don't ever take your culture and your language and your way of doing it and say, this is the real Christianity. You guys are counterfeits. Well, you, you guys need to do it more like I do it. Timothy Keller, he was doing a lecture on this. <laughs> I love this because he, he can say it a little more aggressive. He said, how dare you? And, and, he, and he said, look, I, I, like, I like a certain way of preaching. I like, uh, you know, Greek and Hebrew uh, notes, so footnotes and bibliography and all of this. And if you say this is the way it has to be done, how dare you? How dare you say that if there's a guy up and he's running up and down, you know, and he's maybe saying it louder than you do or maybe he's more expressive in worship than you are and his hands are up or he's dancing or whatever. How dare you say that's less Christian? Don't you know? Don't you know that on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, God didn't allow the gospel to go out in just one culture? Just one language. Oh, no, no, no. 
The kingdom of God is the most culturally diverse reality in the world. There is no other institution, there is no other association that even comes close. Yeah, I will never forget some years ago, being in Israel, we're in the Jordan River, we're baptizing people in the Jordan River. And they got this place where they have these, they've made concrete steps so it's comfortable for people from Kentucky to get into the Jordan River. And, and, and you can come and you can get down. We get down in the Jordan River and we're there and we're praying. We're getting ready to baptize people. And we're praying. We even sang a song or something. And I started feeling this stuff on my feet. I was like, wow, this must be the Holy Ghost in Jordan River. And then I looked down and it was these fish that were nibbling at the, they were just like nibble at your feet. I don't know what that's about, but I was like, oh. And, and we started baptizing people and we were getting excited, you know. And some of you were there with us, you, there was a certain energy there, there was excitement. And all of a sudden, there's a group that's just a little bit further down the Jordan River from Africa and they're singing some beautiful African language. I don't know, I didn't get to meet them, but they're singing, but I knew what they were singing about. Because they were singing the same thing I was singing. Man, they were rejoicing in Jesus. They were rejoicing in the gospel and somebody being born again and they were being bad and they were, and they were louder than us. And over to this side, there was a group from Korea, from South Korea, and, and, they, were, and they were doing their thing really fast. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know what they were saying, but I'm pretty sure they were saying the same stuff I was saying. And then they started singing, and then a little bit further down, there was a, a, a Latin group from, from South America somewhere we, that we got to meet later, and man, they were going at it. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, this is the kingdom of God. Yeah. woo Man, the new heavens and the new earth, that's what it's going to be like. That's what it's going to be like. So that's the first thing. That's number one. This is why it's so important. There is no elitism of language or culture in the kingdom of God. God demonstrated. He did Pentecost on purpose. But the second thing I want you to see is something for hope. In this world we live in today, it's easy to lose hope, you guys. But when we need a little Pentecostal hope in our culture today. And here's what I want you to see. Luke is intentionally wanting us to understand Pentecost as a reversal of Babel. You remember the story in, in, in Genesis 10, there's a, a table of nations, which is similar to what Luke does in verses 9, 10, and 11. There's a table of nations. So he's purposefully, because they're, the way they're, the grammar and everything is, is like he's almost, he's not quoting, but it's very similar to Genesis 10. So he's wanting to remind us of Genesis 10. There's a table of nations, and then in chapter 11, there's a story about Babel where the people want to make a name for themselves, right? They don't want to obey God and spread out. They want to make a name for themselves. It's all about themselves, right? They want to glorify themselves, and what happens? They get fractured because God comes down and says, if they do this, then nothing's going to be impossible for them, so we're going to confuse the language. And here they were. They all spoke one language, and then they got confused because it was all about their glory and their honor and their arrogance, what happens on Pentecost? It's not about the people. It's about God, the mighty deeds of God. And what happens? A reversal. In fact, let's put a, we're going to put a chart up here, and you can see the scriptures side by side. On, on the left side, you have Babel, right? Genesis 11. There's people trying to climb up to God to build their own tower. In Pentecost, God comes down and fills his, spirit, his people with his spirit. In Babel, there's a confusion of tongues. At Pentecost, it's a reversal, and tongues are understood. In Babel, God scattered the people in judgment all over the earth. In Pentecost, people are now going to scatter, but they're going to do it to spread the gospel of Jesus all over the earth. In Babel, language is used to promote a human agenda. They said, verse 4, let's make a name for ourselves. At Pentecost, language is a sign to announce the mighty deeds of God, the wonders of God. In Babel, it's all 
disharmony. And in Pentecost, it results in harmony. Here's the deal, you guys. We live in Babel. Our nation is fractured. Our city is fractured. It is fragmented and broken. It's like Babel. And you know what? So was Jerusalem on that first day of Pentecost. And we, the church, are supposed to be living Pentecost in a culture that's Babel so as to reverse it. And, and some of you are thinking, I know what you're thinking. Listen, you know, you're, you're being naive. Tell me, it, the, 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 the fracture is too deep. The, the brokenness is too much. I, I know that feeling. I, I, sometimes I have that feeling too. But let me just ask you a question. Which is greater? Which is greater? The destruction of sin or the power of the cross to heal? Which is greater, the selfishness of humanity or the self-giving love of our Father? Oh, man, which is greater? Babel or Pentecost? And this is our call. We're supposed to be people of hope because we're people of Pentecost. Final thing, just real quick. We'll make this very quickly. Verses 12 and 13 amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. One last observation from the text. It's a caution. It's a warning. They were people who were amazed and saying, what does this mean? And some of them mocked. They're drunk. Day one of the Spirit, day one, people mocked them. And throughout history, when the Holy Spirit moves and the Spirit of God is poured out in extraordinary ways and extraordinary power, the same thing happens. The same thing happens. And I know you guys, we, we haven't experienced a whole lot of mocking. I have never really, I mean, a couple times in my life for being a follower of Jesus, but most of the time I, I don't experience any kind of mocking. And I want you to know we are the exception, not the rule. Day one, full of the Spirit, they're mocked. I, I was sitting on the deck just a couple nights ago uh, with Aiden. We're talking, and we're talking about persecution and about if we're ready for it or not. And it came up, and, and this isn't even my notes, but it just came up as we were talking, sitting on the deck of the story of Corey Ten Boom. You, you probably know her. She wrote a famous book called The Hiding Place about how she and her family would hide Jews during the Holocaust, and they got captured, and she was the only one in the family that survived the Auschwitz. And the only reason she survived is they made a clerical error. They were supposed to kill her, and they made a mistake, and they let her go. And, and many, many years later, when I was just a kid, she was on one of these Christian TV shows. I, I, I can't remember if it was CBN or 700 Club or something. It was, it was like something like this. This was years and years ago. And, there's a, and maybe this was a recorded thing from even previous, but there's, a, there's her, Corey Ten Boom there, who'd been through incredible suffering. And a caller called in and asked the question, hey, do you think that we as Christians will, will get to avoid the persecution of the tribulation? <laughs> and her response, she looked at the camera and she said, that is a question only an American asks. In other words, I've already lived through a persecution. 
are we going to skip it? <laughs> she was like, really, are you going to ask me that question? You guys, day one, the Spirit was poured out. Power happened. 3,000. We're, we're going to have to stop at verse 13. But, but, but 3,000. Later on, you could keep reading. You're free to read during the week. <laughs> you can read the rest of Acts 2 this week. I promise you, 3,000 people get born again. That's power, man. Yeah. Harvest. Pentecost is about harvest. Yeah, right. yeah. But it wasn't without being mocked. Man, if we're going to walk full of the Spirit, I know we want to claim the harvest stuff. We want to claim the gift stuff. We want to claim all that. But let me just tell you, it comes with some other stuff. But if we're full of and walking of the Spirit, we can do it. Why? Because we're so great? No, because He is. He is. We may have been able to float along in recent past, going through the motions, but those days, friends, are over. The days ahead are going to require fully committed hearts to Jesus, full of and led by the Holy Spirit, experiencing power from on high. It's Pentecost Sunday. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask right now that you would that you would do what, what we've been reading about and talking about here. Lord, that those who may be drained would experience a filling. Those who may sense a lack of power to do your mission would feel, experience a filling of that your spirit. Holy Spirit, I just invite you to do what, what you want to do right now in Jesus' name.